That's such a great song to lead into a study of God's word. We've been looking at Philippians together. And uh, last week we had Reverend Chipo Johnson here. Was she not dynamite? I, I, I mean, Reverend Chipo, I, she's, she's a kick. She's got more energy than, uh, I mean, a nuclear power plant. And uh, she's just so gifted. She uh, began the series in Philippians. And I'm going to pick up her baton and carry it forward. And this is actually my one shot. I'm, I'm the senior pastor here. Um, it's my one shot to actually preach at home. Uh, so today I have home court advantage. But um, I will be next week, I'll be at ECC in Seattle. And uh, we're all preaching through the same message. Super fun. So to, uh, our theme is standing firm, striving together for the faith. And uh, would you pull out our Bible and we'll turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Uh, if you're looking at the Pew Bible, that's page 955. And if you're able, would you stand? Let's read God's word aloud together as a community. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. It's Paul writing. Not that I have already obtained this, or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind, And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Why don't we just take a couple minutes and tell you how Kindred started. I know many of you have been around, you've heard this before, and some of you were here last week and you heard Chipo's version of the story, but I want to share mine with you. Back in 2016, I was on sabbatical. I was taking classes up in Canada and we had one of the worst news cycles since 9-11 in America. And it was a week, the week of 4th of July in which uh, nine Americans were killed by Americans. Each day, this unfolded. Uh, Four African-Americans died in officer-involved shootings. And then by the end of the week on Friday, I won't forget this, in uh, Dallas, five police officers were killed. So nine Americans. And each day, Anna and I are coming back from our classes and we're coming to our dorm room and we open our computers, watch the evening news, and we just were devastated. Just thought, this can't get worse. And then the next day, it gets worse. Well, as it happened, the following Sunday was a day that Anna and I had planned to be in Seattle, but still on sabbatical. It was just a one day, do laundry and you know, then go again. Uh, where are we going to worship was the question. Well, of course, we wanted to come here, but we were on sabbatical. So we we're trying to keep faith with us. We didn't want to confuse you either. So we didn't come to UPC. But the church that the Lord brought to mind was Mount Zion Baptist Church. And I'd never been there. In fact, when I came to Seattle, I said, hey, could we partner with other churches in our city? How about Mount Zion? Because I'd see them on the front page of the newspaper. It's a very prestigious, historic African-American church here in Seattle. And people said, nah, they'll never partner with us. They, kind of, they do their own thing. I thought, well, that's really sad. And, 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 but on this day, I thought, you know, I don't care. I'm just going to go. 
I'm just going to go sit in the pew, just be George. I want to be with our African-American brothers and sisters on this day. And so I did, and it turns out Pastor Aaron Williams, our Pastor Aaron, was a senior pastor of Mount Zion in 2016, and he was preaching that day, and he preached an amazing sermon on the Good Samaritan. Have you ever been in church where it feels like you're the only person in the room, and the pastor just like knows everything about you? That was that day for me. I thought he was looking at me. He would say, God is not looking for people of the cloth. He's looking for people of the towel meaning he's looking for servants. And I thought, oh, he knows. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a man of the cloth, right? I mean, I wasn't wearing my collar or anything. I don't even have a collar, but I was just, he picked me out of the crowd. I think it was the Holy Spirit saying, George, you need to pay attention to this moment. Something's happening here. And it was. I kind of snuck out and he was standing at the door so I couldn't get past him. So I introduced myself to him at the door and he was, of course, you know, Pastor Aaron, so gracious. He's just, wow, you know, let's get lunch together. And so we did and we found that this is, uh, this bond in Christ and this new friendship was such a gift. Well, around the same time, we were in a real estate transaction with another church called Evangelical Chinese Church, one of the fastest growing, largest churches in Seattle. And I had an opportunity to get to know the pastor there. We had coffee, Pastor Alex Sway, is one of the pastors of uh, Evangelical Chinese Church. We had a cup of coffee together. And we're like, wow, there's this bond in Christ. I mean, we're talking about some of the challenges of being a believer in China or some of the challenges that uh, Chinese Americans feel here in Seattle. And just kind of think about Pastor Aaron and Pastor Alex Sway and the moment that we were living in. And pretty soon, the three of us found ourselves on Capitol Hill, squeezing into the same booth, having lunch together. And it's so interesting what we shared in common, even though, despite all the differences of ethnicity and culture and church tradition and so forth. I remember when it was time for us to go and you fight over the check and then um, Pastor Alex looks across the table at Pastor Aaron and he says, you know, I lived here for decades, but I've, I've never actually had an African-American friend. And Pastor Aaron stood up and he reached across the table and took his hand. And he said, well, you've got one now, brother. And I thought, that's the moment that Kindred began. That was the moment. Not long after that, uh, we met Pastor Broughton, Reverend Chipo, Damascus International Fellowship, joined in this partnership. In fact, Pastor James Broughton is the one who designed this current series. This year it was his turn, and so he's leading us through this, picking the texts and the titles. <clears throat> For seven years, these three great churches have been embodying together the multi-ethnic family of God. Uh, for the sake of and the glory of God and the good of our city, uh, we've been worshiping together, we've been praying together, building relationships, learning together, serving together. It's not always been easy, actually. It's been quite a, a challenge, but it's always been wonderful. And what's happening is what I see is that we're growing in our cross-cultural intelligence. I know I am, and I, I see that in you as well, and it's, it's wonderful. I love what it says in our part of our mission statement for Kindred. Together, we're on, on an ongoing, messy, but beautiful journey to bring Christ's healing to our city's divided and broken places. Isn't that nice? You know what, from where I sit, we're just getting started. It's just getting good. So you're, get, you're getting in on the ground floor here. <clears throat> but the question we're raising this spring, summer, is how do we stand firm and strive together for the faith? This is what Paul is calling the Philippians to. How do we do that? So let's go back to our text. Would you look, look again? It might help you to pull it out and look at Philippians 3, 12 to 16 again. Here, I believe Paul identifies three intentions 
humility, reorientation, and practice. Three intentions. Now, the wording here is a little bit tricky. And so as I studied this passage this week, uh, I, I thought it was, it was helpful to me if I could paraphrase these intentions. So look at verse 12. To me, verse 12 boils down to this. I haven't got it yet, but he's got me. Does that sound right? Look at verse 12 and see if that, I haven't got it fully, but he's got me firmly. Does that sound like what Paul's saying there? If you agree with me, then let's, let's call that humility. We'll come back to these later. The second intention is in the next two verses, verses 13 and 14. Here's how I'd paraphrase those. I'm unlearning the past to live into God's future. I'm unlearning the past. Okay, I'm unlearning the old ways to adopt heaven's new ways. Does that sound right? If so, then let's call that reorientation. Now, the third intention is in verse 15 and 16, which I would paraphrase as there's a whole lot we don't know but let our lives live, lives line up with what we do know. And this is harder to see, so I'll, I'll say more about this later. Let our lives line up with what we do know. Let's live what we're learning, in other words. And so I would call that practice. Okay, so, so this is the, the flow of, of, of Paul's thought. Humility. Reorientation. Practice. Now, here's the question for kindred. How can these intentions reshape our experience of race? How, how could they change the conversations around race that we're having here in Seattle? Well, if, let me take it one step closer to home. Last week, one of you asked a really good question in your Connect card. You know those digital or paper cards we ask you to fill out every single week? I know it's annoying, but thank you for doing it. Well, one of you filled it out and put a question in the memo field. This is really helpful. I just want to read it to you because this is really helpful. Someone writes, I have noticed since the beginning of Kindred that occasionally UPC is defined as the white church in the group of three churches. This happens as I'm sitting next to behind and in front of other ethnicities, some of whom have long considered UPC their church. It reinforces that despite our diversity, they are actually part of a white church. Why do we do this? Why do we reinforce this? This seems wrong. Being uh, this morning, uh, I sat next to a couple just visiting as they decided where to attend, being not white. Do you think they considered UPC as their potential new church when UPC is referred to by our head pastor? As white church? She writes, history is one thing, present and future are another. When I read that, I was so happy. I know it kind of calls me out, but I feel like I'm being called in and being called up with that. This is how I grow. And I thought this is exactly the right question for the moment that we're in right now, right? I mean, I bet a lot of you have a similar question. Really what we're asking is, who are we as a church? How do we tell our story? And most importantly, how do we live into the story that we tell as a church? All right, well, let's see if St. Paul's intentions offer us any help. Let's take them in turn. First of all, let's go back to humility. Remember verse 12, Paul's essentially saying, I haven't got it yet. I haven't got it yet, but he's got me. 
Okay, that's humility. Now, humility is at the heart of this letter we call Philippians. It's actually the key to the letter. I've learned this as I've studied Philippians. If you want to understand any part of that letter, you have to first understand humility. And the the center, the the heartbeat of of the letter is in chapter two. It's the Christ hymn. It's called the Christ hymn. Starts at verse six of chapter two. And this is really the heart of the whole, it's the key to understanding every other paragraph in the book. And it's really a song about the humility of God. You know, you've read it before. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. God humbled himself. God reveals himself in our Savior Jesus Christ as a God with humility. He humbles himself in a human, and that human then is exalted by God the Father. So that, we read at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king. Now that's the Christ hymn. And it's Paul's way of expressing good news in Philippians. It's the center of the letter, as I say. And notice, it's about what? Humility. It's about the humility of God, our Savior, Jesus. So that's chapter two. And then as we come closer to our text, we read through chapter three, Paul begins to tell his readers the story of his own coming to humility. Oh, the humility of God is touching his life now and transforming him. See, he says in chapter three, I used to be driven by self-righteousness. Remember, he was a Pharisee, he tells us that, which means he was an expert on the law. He was an expert in thou shalt. This was the old Paul. But then he meets Jesus, and maybe you know that story, in the road to Damascus, flash of light, falls to his knees, he discovers grace, grace, what a gift. And in that grace, he receives a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the way he puts it in chapter three, verse nine. Grace is the gift of a righteousness from God not on, the basis of, uh, not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of thou shalt, not of the basis of our obedience to the law, or what we do. No, this is a righteousness based on faith. This is grace, a righteousness that's based on what he did, you know, the Christ hymn, the dying and rising of God's son. And what Paul's arguing here is that this is bringing deep humility into his life. We call it gospel humility. It's a confidence that comes now, not from myself, but from God. Not from thou shalt, but from he did and he will. Trust in God. I haven't got it yet, but he's got me. See that? That's humility. I just have to say, I wonder if you feel this way too. For me, it's stunning to hear the apostle talk this way. I mean, I get that I don't have it all together, but to hear St. Paul, St. Paul, we call him, say he doesn't have it all together. I mean, this guy has seen the risen Jesus face to face. He's planted most of the churches of the New Testament and he's a writer of much of the New Testament. And he's saying, you know, I know I'm saved. I know that Jesus has me, but I also know I'm not fully living out the Christian faith. I'm not fully faithful yet. I'm just not there. And so I go to myself, wow, wow, Paul is still struggling to work it out. Okay, deep breath, come on. Deep breath. Maybe I'm not as lost as I thought I was. Maybe the church today isn't as lost as we sometimes think it is. Humility. And I wonder 
how that kind of humility would change the conversations that we're having around race here in Seattle. Because in my experience, so much of the way we talk about race is just covered with thou shalts. You know what I mean? The guilt we're supposed to feel, the language we're supposed to use, the identities we're supposed to claim, we're shooting all over one another. We're shooting, shooting, S-H-O-U-L-D. Thou shalt, that's what we're saying one way or another. And I don't think it's working. I don't see it as helping. To me, it seems just to be nurturing self-righteousness, fostering deeper divides and glossing over the real issues and the real work that we should be doing, the work of justice, which requires us to do it together, not apart. See, on the other hand, let's just take humility for a second. What happens if you take the phrase racial equity and put it into verse 12? Look at that text again. Replace the pronouns with the phrase racial equity. Very important phrase. Here Paul would be saying, if he said that, not that I've already obtained racial equity or already reached the goal, but I press on to make racial equity my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How do you feel about that? How does that make you feel when you hear that? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, for me, I feel a sense of realism about that. Okay, good. I'm not there yet. Okay, good, we're not there yet. That's true, realism, important. Then I feel a sense of confidence. He's got us, all of us, every single one of us. He's got us, even in the midst of the struggle. And then I feel a sense of invitation. Ah, invitation, a call to action. I press on to make the work of racial equity my own work. See, that humility starts to transform the conversation. I mean, we need humility if we're gonna get this right. It takes humility to admit where you've been wrong and part of the problem. It takes humility to know that I've been saved not by my own efforts but by somebody else's in order to have empathy for somebody else who's in crisis. It takes humility to be able to trust God's work more than my own work and bring about the reconciliation that only comes from Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have to resist self-righteousness at every corner. We're all learners, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, left or right, we're all learners, no matter where your ancestors came from or how recently or long ago, none of us has this figured out. That's what the Connect card was reminding us, I think. She's saying, we'll just look around, and you can do that right now, you just look around, see who's here. We're actually making progress, we are. We're not there yet. But there's more diversity at UPC. There's been some for a long time. But now with kindred, God's doing a new thing among us. And I think she's right to point it out. That's humility. That's the second intention. That's the first intention. The second intention Paul's teaching is this. Let me take a couple minutes on this. Reorientation. Reorientation. Remember back in verses 13 and 14, the next two in the text, Paul's saying, essentially, I'm unlearning the past to live into God's future. That's reorientation. The first thing to notice about this is the new family. Look at verse 13. It starts off with the word beloved. That's actually a translation, gloss. If you look at the footnote, you'll see literally Paul writes the word for brothers. And for Paul, that word was inclusive. So he'd be meaning brothers and sisters. So he's immediately talking about a new family. Remember, kindred means family. See, what Paul knows is that when you and I come to faith in Jesus, God puts us in a whole new family. We're adopted into the family of God. That's the way Paul talks about it. We experience a new birth. 
through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this, God becomes our father, our father who art in heaven. We're given a new righteousness, a, a new heart, a new name, Christian, they call us. We receive a new inheritance, forgiveness, freedom, eternal life, glory. And then other believers become our sisters and our brothers. This is a whole new family that happens. One time Jesus was teaching in a house and his, his, his biological family came looking for him, his mother and his brothers. You know, he had brothers. And they sent word inside the house and Jesus got the word as he was teaching. They interrupted him, I guess. And he, he said, well, wait a minute. Who are my mother and my brothers? And the text says, this is Mark 3, and looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, and he says explicitly, and sister and mother. You go, wow, what's he saying? He's totally redefining what family is. He says family primarily for the follower of Jesus, for my, for my followers, is not biologically defined, it's spiritually defined. It's not about who you were born with, it's about how you were reborn with. This is a new family, this is your new primary family. This is radical stuff, the church. So that's the first thing to notice when he says beloved, there's a lot there. The second thing to notice here is about reorientation is the talk of forgetting, Paul says. Talk about forgetting the past. Because what Paul knows is that discipleship is this process of putting off the sinful patterns of our families of origin and culture and learning how to do life in the new family of Jesus. This is what he means by forgetting what lies behind. He's not talking about erasing your memory or of not studying history. You know, I know some of you are in exams right now. You're not like, oh, good. No, uh, no, history still matters. In fact, he's giving us a little bit of his own bio and history, talking about his tribe, his culture, his past. What he's talking about no, is breaking the power of history, breaking the power of the past, not repeating the past. You know, the Harvard philosopher George Santayana says, Spanish-American philosopher, he says, those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And the truth is, and this is the way God has made us, and it's a beautiful thing, uh, most of the time, our lives are shaped by family. Um, and all of us have good things about our families, but all of us have not so good things about our families. Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, the family, Pete Scazzaro says, is the most powerful group to which you will ever belong because they set you on life's course. They shape the way you think about yourself, about the world, the way that you live out of those thoughts and beliefs. Very powerful. The Bible teaches us that the sinful patterns of behavior that we experience oftentimes come from prior generations. That sinful patterns pass from one generation to the next through families. For example, Exodus 34 verse seven says the iniquity of parents will visit their children to the third and fourth generation. They'll knock on the door. He's not talking about punishing people who are innocent, as is commonly misread, but what, what the scholars tell us is that the ancient Israelites lived oftentimes in three or four generations, not in just nuclear families. So the three or four generations are living under the same roof. And, and what the Lord knows is that this, these sinful patterns are contagious. I mean, you learn from your parents who learn from their parents who learn from their parents how to live life. 
And it, they just, it just gets inside of us. And so it begins to repeat. It can. Unless, uh, barring an intervention of God's grace, these patterns will repeat. And this is what the Bible is teaching us. So we see a model of this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations. If you know the story, you know that these same patterns repeat themselves in each generation. Poor marriages, favoritism, lying, estrangement, broken relationships. The pattern re- repeats. And so Pete Scazzaro said the reason our discipleship is so shallow in the West and in America in particular is because we have not come to terms with the, the sinful and broken patterns of our families of origin or our culture. He says, Jesus may live in our hearts, but grandpa lives in our bones, right? And that can be a good thing, but it's also a troubling thing. But Paul says, but Paul says, back to the text, but Paul says, I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm unlearning. See, I know I'm in a new family, brothers and sisters. I know there's a new narrative, the good news of the gospel. And so I'm reorienting from what once was to what what shall soon be. My future in Jesus Christ, every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be gathered around the throne of God. That's where we're going. And I want to start to live out of the values of that new family. Take some work, actually. And he calls that work, I call that work, reorientation. And what I want to notice is that the work of racial equity also requires a work of reorientation. We have to do it. Because look, you and I shouldn't feel guilty for something that we did not do. And I know you didn't steal someone's land. I know you didn't take someone as a slave. I know you didn't redline any neighborhoods. I know you didn't intern anybody in a labor camp. I know you didn't, def- uh, I know you, you didn't act in those ways. And you shouldn't feel guilty for that as though you did, because you're not. But here's the thing, here's the but. The people who did those things and things like that, they're in our family history. They're, they're, they're in our family of origin. They're in our cultural families. I mean, all of our cultural families. And what this means is that while we haven't done what they've done, there's a real possibility, at least, that we might think the way they thought. That our thought worlds are shaped by theirs. If we haven't carefully understood those narratives and intentionally learned to forget them. And this is true, by the way, whether they in the past were hurt by others or the ones hurting others. It shaped the way they saw themselves, saw others, saw worlds, saw God, and they have given us a mental landscape in which we live our lives today. We've been shaped by our families of origin and our culture. So look, what we believe is that every culture, all cultures are rich and beautiful and worthy of celebration, all of them. But they've all at the same time been damaged and distorted by the fall. And so we need reorientation. We need to unlearn. By the way, to do that, two very valuable tools, history, really very important, but we want to do it together with other cultures so we see it differently. And God's word, studying the Bible. But we want to do it together so we can see through each other's lenses. So we do that work to see our past in light of our future. I think you get the point. But the question then becomes for me, what have racial distortions taught me about myself and others? Or or what lies behind that I have to forget? What new ways do I have to take up in the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus? 
All right, so let's loop back to that connect card. I, I see the value of this. Yes, we see diversity at UPC, but what about equity? What about racial equity? Are we seeing new ways of thinking? Are we seeing new ways of doing? Because we have to be careful not to confuse diversity uh, for racial equity. We're seeing more ethnic diversity at UPC, yes. And we celebrate that. But if most of the decisions at UPC are made the way they've always been made, you see, if the culture of UPC predominantly reflects the cultures of Northern Europe, uh, Europe who planted this church, then no matter how many people of color are actually sitting in our pews, we're still more of a white church than we'd like to believe. Amen. See that? Yeah. Reorientation. That's the second intention. Okay, one more, and this one is quicker, it's simpler, but it's, I think, the most important of them all. And it's practice, practice. Paul essentially says, I believe in verses 15 and 16, there's a lot we don't know, but let our lives line up with what we do know, right? I love the acknowledgement. Yeah, there's a lot we don't know, a lot of unanswered questions, but here's what we want. What we do know, we want our lives to line up with them. So he uses a word here. In Greek, it doesn't translate well in our text. It's a Greek word that, that was referred to people walking in a line. I'm picturing like a conga line, you know. People in a line and they're taking a step. And that step that they take lines up with what they know. So you, so you put your thought into action, he's saying. And this is important because, you know, you and I come to this conversation about race from many different places. Some of us are way down the road and others of us are just taking our first steps. Some of us are a little weary and need some rest, frankly. Others are totally overwhelmed by the enormity of the challenge, don't even want to start. But all of us can take a step. All of us can take a step. You can take a step. You can put something into practice, which is where humility, there's a lot I don't know, meets reorientation. Yeah, but I'm learning this. Okay, now practice. Take a step. And by the way, this is the heart of kindred. Do something. Kindred is not about virtue signaling or slacktivism. It's not about wristbands or yard signs. Kindred is about taking a concrete step that would make an actual difference in your life, somebody else's life, and therefore in our city. Take a step. Do something. Think of that Christ hymn in chapter 2. Think of what it would mean to sing that song in ancient Philippi. Wow. And they did. To hear that God gave up the privileges that come with being God. To hear that God became a slave. This is right. I mean, there were slaves in the early church, and they're hearing this. That God became a slave. To hear that the one who did become a slave also became a king. I mean, this is an incredible story. It was lifted up to the highest place of honor. Can you imagine how a slave would hear that? Wow. What step might they take knowing they live in that story? Or can you imagine how someone with high status and privilege would hear that? And what step might they take if they know they live in that story? And listen, I, I, I'm not an expert in this at all. I'm way behind many of you. And I had no idea what I was stepping into back in 2016 when I went to Mount Zion Baptist Church. I really had no idea. I just knew I had to do something. And that's true for Pastor Aaron and Pastor Alex. None of us really knows what we're doing, but we're taking steps. We're saying to each other in our own way, something's got to change. We've got to do something, right? And we take a step. 
What we discovered is, along the way, step by step, it's the Holy Spirit who's been at work. It's not just us, and he knows. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing, where he's leading us. Psalm 37 says, our, our steps are made firm by the Lord. And it says, even, even when we stumble, we shall not fall. For the Lord holds us by the hand. He's got us. See, David's saying, he's got us. And this is what kindred's about. Kindred's about taking small steps in the new ways of our new family. Small like going to another church. Small like gathering around a table. Small like lifting up one another's concerns in prayer. But these small steps, they have multiplied. And over seven years, they have grown. Some of us now are actually making reparations payments. Some of us now are holding conversations in corporate headquarters. Some of us now are coming alongside underserved schools and making a difference. And some of us are doing what this person who submitted the Connect card did. Not just fill out the card, but thank you. That person decided to live as family and embody global culture. And those are two of our values here. Live as family, embody global culture. And here's how I know that. I'm reading a little bit between the lines of this Connect card, but notice what they say about seeing a visiting couple. They took a step. They reached out. They saw someone who was there, apparently of a different ethnicity, and they decided not to white church them, but to find a way in their own way to say, hey, welcome. This is not a white church. This is Jesus's church. And I'm so happy to celebrate Jesus together with you today. Well done, well done. That's a practice. And I love the reorientation and I love the humility. Look, we haven't got it yet, but he's got us. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a beautiful story you have us in. How hungry and thirsty our world is for what we see in the letter Philippians, a family that celebrates a God who didn't grab onto privilege, but who emptied it in order to elevate us to the right hand of glory. Thank you for that beautiful story. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit so that we don't just admire the story, but get the opportunity to step into it and be part of living it. You're doing a new thing in our midst. We pray you'd open our eyes Open our hearts and give us the courage to step into it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.